Okay, let's talk about JSF, shall we? Joint Strike Fighter, the new toy. Lightning 2 is what we're calling it nowadays, P38 Lightning, the Lockheed stateside, English Electric Lightning in the UK, so it works for both the nations that are the prime contractors for the airplane, the Americans obviously, and us the Brits, so that's where Lightning 2 is derived from. Um, and I just want to set the scene on what we're doing with the aeroplane. It's a huge contract. They're talking 3,000 aeroplanes for production. A giant contract. The next hurricane, you know, the next, I don't know what, F-16 replacement sort of thing. It's going to be a big program. And there's three variants. There's a conventional variant, which the USAF is going to buy in large numbers. There's a CV variant, carrier variant, which is a catapult arrested landing, crash on a carrier type variant, which the US Navy is going to buy in large numbers. And then there's a Stover variant, which we're interested in, and obviously the US Marine Corps, who are, they're the big buyers of Stover airplanes for the last 30 years. So there's a Stover variant as well. All three looking very similar. Um, and the one that I'm particularly interested in, and the one that the UK is interested in, is that Stover variant, the F-35B. Uh, some big picture stuff here. Um, this is what you'd expect with an aeroplane that's 2000 something for its design era. Mark 1.6, plus. Some of the variants go faster. 40 plus AOA, which means you can flat plate it. It's a typical high angle of attack capable aeroplane. And lots of thrust. That's the thrust in reheat. 40k single engine. It is a big engine. And we get the same amount of thrust in the Stovall variant for the hover. So again, it's about a 40,000 pound category engine, both conventionally with reheat and in Stovall mode without reheat. Stealthy on that last line is the important thing. That's the discriminator, if you like, for the aeroplane. What makes it special? It does all the things that you expect modern fighter bombers to do nowadays, but it's stealthy too. So it's it's a real replacement for the F-117, I think, which is out of service now in America. It's a fighter, carries internal weapons, stays stealthy. It's day one, day two of the war when the bad guys are around in big numbers. You stay stealthy. And then days three, four, five of the war, when stealth isn't so, so important, you can stick pylons on and turn it into a real bomb truck. But stealthy is the key there. Um, here's some things that I think is strange about the aeroplane. Uh, pilots of my generation grew up with head-up displays, so most of us are head-up display slaves. You know, you can't fly without a head-up display. This airplane has got no head-up display because we now paint it on the inside of the pilot's visor on the helmet. So the, the symbology that we're used to seeing on a glass in front of you is now painted on the visor. And it also allows you to paint not just the flight symbology that we're used to, but it allows you to use sensors around the aeroplane to look everywhere, day or night, through the aeroplane as well as outside the aeroplane, and it will tell you what there is out there in the, in the real world. So you get 360-degree situational awareness. And the other thing there is we're electric nowadays. All my legacy aeroplanes, hydraulics for the grunt. You know, the actual work of moving the flight controls is hydraulic. This aeroplane's gone DC electric for the grunt. So we don't have pipes running through the airplane, we have cables running around the airplane. And that's what an actuator looks like nowadays. And the white thing, 
That's what a battery looks like nowadays. That's a 270 volt battery. Um, going quickly back to Stovall, the thing that to me has been really clever is that the three cockpits of the three variants look the same. You could put a pilot in all three cockpits, take the blindfold off, and he would not be able to tell which airplane he's sitting in. They look identical inside the cockpit. So we've done the Stovall stuff in a cockpit that is exactly the same as the two conventional variants. Auto-eject I'll come on to later. Ship rolling vertical landing, again I'll come on to later. This is another UK naval maritime great first. You know, we did angle decks, we did catapult launches, we did arresting, all that sort of stuff. The next great British invention is ship rolling vertical landing, which I'll come on to later. Um, this is the big picture of the flight test. Uh, it's a big program. We've got, how many is that? 13 prototypes. Uh, three of them are flying. The first one, AA-1, was, it's a non-standard airplane. It's earlier than the others. It's not quite production standards used for risk reduction. BF-1 and BF-2 are the first two Stover variants, and they are entirely production representative. So those are the ones that we're concentrating on now to do the clearance work. The design is done, we're doing the clearance work now. And Catbird is a Boeing 737. Everything's big in America, remember. We tend to do things with a 125 or something like that. They use a Boeing 737. And on the nose of it, they've got mounted the wings of JSF so that all the internal mission systems, the radars and that sort of sensors which are mounted in the wings, they're now on this wing of a, in the front of a, Boeing 737, and there's a nose on the front of the 737 as well, which is a JSF nose. So. Three sites, they're all built in Fort Worth in Texas, where the Cowboys come from, and the testing then migrates as the airplanes get built and delivered. The conventional jets go to Edwards on the West Coast, and the Navy variants and the Marine Corps Stovall variants go to Pax River on the East Coast. Um, I'm not going to talk much about conventional because my heart is in the Stovall stuff, so I forgive me for not saying much about the, the CETOL one. This airplane, AA-1, it's the first prototype. It flew in December of 06. It's been a real workhorse. It's done over 100 hours now. It doesn't sound a lot, but actually it's quite a lot for a, a prototype-type airplane. And it's been... The key there is where it says de-risking on the left-hand side. That's what it, it's been de-risking these electric actuators. It's been de-risking this HMD. It's been de-risking the systems which are new and unique to JSF. Uh, in the meantime, it's also done some useful stuff for uh, confirmation that we've got the basic fundamental design right. Supersonics relight testing has just been completed at Edwards. Backup power systems because we're not hydraulically powered, because we're electrically powered, it's really, really important that the electrical generation is sound, the batteries are sound, and that when something fails, the backup supplies kick in in milliseconds, microseconds. They have to kick in really fast, because like any fly-by-wire aeroplane, they really don't like having the controls go quiet for half a second or so. So the electrical power system is really, really important. It kicks in quickly. So this airplane has done some of the testing, some of the early testing, to make sure that the failure cases, the redundancy is there. 
This airplane, sadly, it's been there, it's been doing tanking, USAF style. The picture on the bottom right is Edwards Air Force Base. It's just about reaching the end of its life. And again, this is Americans. They build a beautiful, brand new aeroplane. It finishes its working life. So you put it in a museum. No, you don't. You take it and you shoot holes in it. This aeroplane ends up as being a live fire candidate. And they literally, they take pot shots at the thing and make sure that the wing doesn't drop off or the electrical system is redundant enough. So. I think they've done this since Vietnam. In Vietnam, they lost a lot of airplanes to stray shots. You know, a farmer lying in a field on his back shooting a shotgun, and they lost F-4s and A-4s because of that. Ever since then, they do these live fire testings, and poor old AA-1, that's its role for the future. I'm going to talk about this jet, which is the F-35B, the Stovall variant. Uh, it's a silly cartoon. Um, but it is quite a complex aeroplane. Of the three variants, this is clearly the interesting one. It's the complex one. It's the one that's got lots of things to go wrong and lots of things that we need to design out to make sure it's easy for the pilot. We're not flying in Stovall. I should have explained right at the start. At the moment, we're still only flying conventionally. We have not yet started the Stovall work, and I'll talk about that more later. Here's the, um, the heart of the lift system. Um, the engine... You can put two engines in it. You can put a Pratt & Whitney engine in it, or you can put a General Electric engine in it. So the core engine is interoperable competition. You know, two engines, they have to fight for the trade. Uh, the Americans have done that in the past with the F-16 program, and it works. So the core engine is interchangeable. Currently, we're using a Pratt engine. The lift system scabs onto either of the engines, and it's basically a big lift fan up at the front, driven through a gearbox and a clutch and that shaft which takes the drive off the core engine. Roll posts take bleed off the core engine for roll control as you slow down. And the back end there is the articulating nozzle at the back which obviously gives you two big posts. A lot of thrust out of the lift fan, a lot of thrust out of the back end. It's a rough match, about 18, 20,000 pounds out of each when you're sitting in the hover. And there's about 4,000 pounds comes out of the roll posts. So you end up with the £40,000 total. I just want to show you this little cartoon of the articulation of the nozzle at the back. It's really, really simple. It's just two motors, three bearings. They, and from that, you can get the full articulation down, and you can waggle it side to side. So we also use it for your control when the hover. And then... This thing, I talked, one of the early slides talked about auto-eject. Why do we need auto-eject? There's no auto-eject on the Harrier, and over the life of the Harrier, we've had one or two engine problems, and it's, it's, it, it's sort of sunk into the sea, or it's sunk into the ground, and the pilot has ejected. Why has the pilot usually been able to get away with it? It's because on the Harrier, the thrust is central. There's one engine in the middle, the thrust comes out of four nozzles, more or less in the middle, so when the engine starts to cough and splutter, the thrust loss is sort of symmetric. It's near the center of gravity. On this thing, if you look at this, if you lose the core engine, you get an instant pitch up. If you lose the lift fan, you get an instant pitch down. You can't actually lose the core engine instantly. There is so much inertia of this big engine that the degradation of the core engine 
it's a degradation, not an instant loss. But you can get an instant loss of the lift fan. That shaft could break. And if that shaft breaks, then you get an instant loss of lift from the lift fan, and so you get an instant nose down pitch. And this little cartoon here, it's not a cartoon, let me just show you this thing. This is, um, this is in the simulator. We do all our design work in fabulous simulators nowadays. The guy sitting in the hover, he's just moving sideways across the runway. And when he gets steady in the, in the, over the runway, we inject a shaft brake. So that's what happens on a shaft brake. Um, instant loss of thrust. I forget the exact time. You're upside down in 0.6 of a second or 1.6 seconds. I can't remember which it is. Very short time. Far too fast for any superhuman test pilot or whatever to react. There's no way you're going to react quickly enough to get out. So we've put in auto eject. It's not new. Um, this aeroplane uses technology from legacies, obviously. Um, the auto-escape system, the auto-eject system, is scabbed, it's copied, it's borrowed from uh, Russian technology, Russian uh, expertise, if you like. The Yak-141 in particular, similar uh, engine at the front, engine at the back, two disparate posts of thrust had the same sort of issues, and they used auto-eject very extensively in their development programs. We're doing the same. That was a lift system. Um, onto the airplane itself, uh, BF-1, the first Stovall airplane to fly. All the stuff on the left is basically saying is, it's the real McCoy. This is a genuine production article, although it's the first Stovall airplane to fly. Flight science is why the way the engine works, the flight controls work, the systems work, it's the real McCoy. And the jobs that we're doing with it, it's really that stuff under the Stovall. We need to check the air data. Air data is really critical to all fly-by-wire airplanes nowadays. And we need to make sure the flying qualities are okay and the engine works. But those are almost givens nowadays. It's the Stovall envelope expansion, the loads. And then we'll take it to the ships and do the ski jump clearance. That's, the, that's what this airplane is going to do in its life. There's a little video here. And I might as well show you this. It's a corporate video. Uh, it's a bit razzmatazzish. We flew the airplane uh, in June last year. Um, convention, it was the second airplane to fly. AA-1 had been flying for 18 months before we flew this one. And this is just a corporate video showing the scene at Fort Worth. They have these run stations because it's Texas and it's hot. So the airplanes live inside these shelters and you start up in the shelters and taxi out. Um, everything's chased heavily. So we had an F-16 and an F-18. These are to make sure that you don't go and fly over George Bush's ranch 25 miles south of Fort Worth. You know? So that's to make sure that the idiot Brit doesn't do something that he's not supposed to. Um, and then you get airborne. There's another slide that comes on later to talk about what you do on a first flight nowadays. Um, and really all you do on a first flight nowadays is one takeoff and one landing. And as long as those are happy, as long as those are good, then there's great rejoicing and everybody gets medals and everybody is very pleased with it. We, you don't make huge steps on a first flight. It's get airborne, check it out, make sure it flies okay, in the landing mode, make sure the engine works okay, and throw it back down on the ground. And um, the, the flight here, um, 
Pilots always say this, it flew just like the designer intended. It really, really should, because our simulators use the same models that the airplane is flying with. The, the airplane's got models of all the aerodynamics of the airplane. It's got models of all the propulsion system. And exactly those models are what we stick in the simulator. We design the way it flies in the simulator. It really, really should fly like the simulator. And by golly, it does. That's really, really impressive to me. And they always wet you down at the end. I don't know why. Quite refreshing in Texas, I must admit. Very silly, but fun. Um, how would you get to a first flight? This is a sort of a flight testy sort of thing. Um, there's, there's a huge amount of, of design work, engineering work, checkout work that goes on before the airplane leaves the shop floor. And then it goes out to the flight line into those run stations where we do a load more work. Um, here's just some of the obvious stuff that we do. This thing called the IPP. Uh, this is another bit of new technology on the airplane. All my legacies have got um, an APU, an auxiliary power unit, to provide electrics, and they've got an environmental control system to provide cooling for the pilot, and they've got a, an OBOG system to provide oxygen, and they've got emergency power supply of some sort for when the engine quits. On this airplane, it's all in the IPP. It's one piece of turbo machinery that does everything. It runs in burn mode like an a APU when you climb in the jet, you fire this thing up, and it then generates electricity to start the engine. And once the engine's running, this IPP flicks over into a bleed mode, so it then runs off-engine bleed forever and a day. It never stops spinning whilst you're in the airplane. The other thing, engine runs obviously there on the bottom right, the other thing that sort of impresses me about the process, BIT is a built-in test. Everything checks itself on modern airplanes. Except on this airplane, there is one button to press. After engine start, you've got everything singing and dancing. There's one button to press, and everything goes into a check routine. It takes about 90 seconds. Stovall doors open, effectors waggle around, flight controls do all sorts of things. Lots of internal checks on all the systems. And if it doesn't say go at the end of it, you don't fly. Now, on most of my legacies, which have had similar systems, we've got this right about the time the airplane's entering service. And up until then, we've, okay, it failed because of this, we'll still go fly. It failed because of that, we'll still go fly. This program, if we fail a bit, we don't go fly. I think that's remarkable. I think it's really good because it means that this bit process, which is absolutely critical, gets checked out right at the start of the program. How can I get enthusiastic about bit? It's really boring. Um, so we've checked out the airplane in the run station. It's working fine. Then, because it's a stovall jet, we take it down to a pit. It's a, a gridded pit. The airplane sits on a grid. Um, and the hot air sort of goes down at the grid, and it gets vectored underneath with louver doors, and the hot air comes out there. So there used to be one at Bedford. There used to be one at Dunsfold. They're, they're fairly common. And there's one now built at Fort Worth, there's one at Pax River, there's one at Edwards. So they're now sprouting all over the world just for doing this type of testing. And what do we test on the pit? We test um, back before we did the first flight, back in June last year. Before that, we did de-risking of Stovall. We did conversions. That little graphic in the top right, mode one 
is when the airplane's flying conventionally. Mode 4 is when it's flying in Stovall. And you go around that little loop to go from mode 1 to mode 4, mode 4 to mode 1. And those little sub-modes halfway through. So we did conversions. We messed about with the nozzles to make sure they, they, they respond correctly. Thrust up to 30%. Why only 30%? It's because the engine had blown a couple of blades, the same blade twice, the same third stage turbine blade on a test stand blew it, that the it shattered and came off. So we had a complete limit. We couldn't fly in stowaway mode. We could only fly conventionally. It was all to do with uh, flutter, as these things always are. And it was a frequency of flutter that was not expected. It was a one of the higher, what's the word, higher, gosh, sorry. Never mind. Doesn't matter. It was not expected. There's been a redesign. So from the first of these blade failures was, was January 07. A second blade failed in August 07. And since then, there's been panic, 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 panic. Let's fix it, fix it, fix it. There's been a redesign of the blade internally. The cooling inside the blade has been changed. And there's been a change to the gas flow through that turbine stage to make it less regular. They have deliberately destabilized the flow so that you get less harmonics. That was a word. That's a good word. So you, so you disrupt this higher order harmonic. So that's what we did back in May last year. And we've just been back on the pit because we've now got the good engine. We've got the fix. We've been back on the pit in March, April this year, thrashing it to death, full power, conversions, uh, and long periods of running in Stovall mode. Um, so we're checking out. It's now mounted on a thrust stand. So beneath this grid, there's a big weighing scale. And so you can measure the thrust directly that the airplane is generating. And that allows us to measure not just the thrust in Stovall mode. Thrust split is the difference between the thrust out of the lift fan and thrust out of the core engine. And in the hover, that's what gives you your pitch control, your basic attitude control of the airplane is controlled by thrust split. There's also roll split from those two roll posts. And you can directly measure it on the pit. Why do we need to do that? Don't we trust it? The reason we need to do it really accurately is because of these models. The aeroplane flies on models. The controller is designed around these models. If the models aren't right, the aeroplane will fly badly, bordering on dangerously. So it's really, really important to validate these models. There's a little, little picture here, I think, of, of what we did on the pit. So again, this is just a, a little video of the airplane being towed down to the pit. Um, it's actually not that dramatic because we're tied down, so we're not bouncing around all over the place. But you hear the engine in the background spooling up there. We're in conventional mode at the moment. Doors open at the bottom, at the bottom are weapon bay doors. And obviously the nose wheel doors were open as well. This is a bit routine going on. This is where the flight control surfaces get wanged around. And here's a conversion going on. So the doors are starting to open. The lift fan is being spun up through the clutch and the gearbox. And now at the back end, this articulating nozzle is starting to pivot down. And I think and it'll show us now going to the hover position, I think, is the next thing. So it'll go all the way down to the hover position. Those 
serrated edges of the nozzle. That's just stealth. There's so many. It's like the F117. Stealth, you end up with these edges. It's so that when somebody's looking at you from the rear radars, again, you still give them a, a hard time stealthily. And you can see the nozzle moving in and out. One of our key controls of thrust from the core engine is that final exit area. It's a convergent divergent nozzle like most jet engines. And so area control at the back is one of the, the best ways of controlling brute thrust out of the core engine. Did I get that right? I think I did. Okay, so that's where we were. We've done the run station stuff. We've put it on the pit. So we now know that the Stovall stuff is good. What do you do next before you go fly? Well, you go and do taxi tests. Um, what you're testing for on taxi tests is it's the routine stuff, you know. Brakes work, nose wheel steering, air data. It's really important. It feeds into the control law. It feeds into the engine control. Air data needs to be good. So you can check that out. We went up to about 110 knots on the, on the taxi testing to check out this sort of stuff. This was... Um, not a good test. This was a 65 knot ground speed test. We'd already done very low speed. We'd done medium speed. This was a slightly higher speed. The test was close your eyes, stand on the brakes, and check the anti-skid. Anti-skid is just like um, ABS in the car sort of thing. It's the same sort of thing. You stand on it, it looks after you, and the brakes go judder, 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 but you stop gracefully. Um, what we got on this one with the left brake was fine, but the right brake locked. So we burst the tire 1.6 seconds after the brakes came on. It's as fast as that. Um, so that's not good, is it? It's good that we did the test. The thing I like about this is, again, it's incremental flight test. It's doing things progressively. You could argue that we know about brakes. We know about nose wheel steering. Let's not bother with this. This is why you still do the simple stuff because a simple procedure like this, and we burst a tire. This is what really happened. Uh, Right-hand tire obviously burst because the brake locked solid, so that wheel stopped rotating completely. Uh, why? Hi there, there is still hydraulics on the airplane. There is hydraulics for the sort of ancillary services. The gear goes up and down on hydraulics. The brakes are hydraulic. Um, the air refueling probe comes out hydraulically. Some of the engine controls are also hydraulic. So it's not all electric. This is one of the hydraulic systems. There's hydraulic A and hydraulic B. Both go to both wheels, both brakes. So it's duplex. Uh, and this was FOD, foreign objects, inside one of the control valves in high B on that side. Locked it solid. So we burst the tire. So the tire flailed. So that hose at the bottom, lying on the, on the runway there, that got dislodged by the flail of the tire after it had burst. Unfortunately, that line happened to be hide A. So we've now locked up hide B, and when we lock up hide B, five seconds later we isolate hide B from the brakes because hide B is clearly not good. So we'd lost hide B from both brakes after five seconds, and now we're quietly piddling away hide A. And we stopped in 28 seconds, and they worked out that 30 seconds was when we ran out of high day. So it makes you think, doesn't it? Makes you think. Um, these are the learning points. Um, we, we redesigned that hose. And, and to me, it's firefighting. It's not designing. It's firefighting. 
But every so often there's a time in any program where firefighting is exactly the right thing to do. And that, to me, is remarkable. They redesign this, this hose used to go from here sort of up to, it fits in about where that little black dot is, and it used to sort of come up here and swing very close underneath to the bottom of the tyre. Now it's been rerouted, so it still goes in there, but it's, it's kept further away from the tyre. Okay, so now we're getting up to a first flight. What do you do on a first flight? This is, uh, this is Texas. This is uh, a Fort Worth conurbation. That's the big DFW airport if you ever fly in and out of there. And this is the base. This is a joint uh, contractor and U.S. Navy base. Uh, that's where we operate from. And this T over here, that's our play area. That's our low altitude play area up to 15,000 feet. And that's where we went. Roughly a yellow track like that. There was an inner loop and then an outer loop. And this next slide shows you why we did the inner loop. The reason we did the inner loop is to do this. We got airborne. And you, you don't do very much on the first flight. You really don't want to do anything dramatic. You put the power to mill on the runway, which you've checked on the pitch, you've checked it on ground runs. So you put the engine in the corner that it's happy with, and you take off, and you leave it there and you climb, and you leave the gear down, because you're only going to get into trouble if you raise the gear, so let's leave the gear down. So you climb all the way here to 15,000 feet, gear down, you double back to the overhead, because the first time you want to do anything with the engine, does it still work? Of course it's going to work, but you want to be in the right place just in case it coughs and splutters, which is 15,000 feet in the overhead of the airfield. And then the next bit, all this stuff here, PA is an Americanism for Powered approach, it means gear down. Powered approach, flying qualities, is what we're trying. Can we land the airplane? We're here, so we must have taken off. All you're then thinking about is, can we land the airplane? So we're doing little doublets at a good speed, 225 knots, and then we're slowing down to approach speed is 13 AOA. Depends on the weight, it works out as 150, 175, that sort of speed range. So you work down in stages to do your flying qualities check. We'd planned also to raise the gear, but we ran out of fuel because we had a couple of problems before takeoff, so we burnt a bit of gas, so we didn't have the fuel because we wanted the gear down by a certain fuel state so we could come back home and mess about before we had to throw it on the ground. And we did formation. Why do you do formation on a first flight? It's because a takeoff is a very open-loop process. You rush down the runway and you're doing nothing. You pull back on the stick and it gets airborne. And really, the pilot is doing nothing. The airplane's got airborne, it's boring a hole in the sky, you're just along for the ride. When you do a landing, the runway gets bigger and bigger and bigger, and as you get close, you're going to start getting busy, making little flares, making little adjustments. And you really want to do that before you see the runway. So that's why we did a bit of formation. We formated on the F-18 chase, just fly formation on the F-18 so you can get some little inputs in with the stick. It's over here on this airplane, it's a side stick. So you make little inputs just to make sure the flying quarters are okay when you're busy, as well as when you're not. And then we landed a wave off, make sure that the airplane waves off okay. Very, very simple, very, very straightforward. And as you saw from that video, it really was, from my point of view, a doddle. Follow-on flights and plans. I'm not going to worry you too much with this. We've got a very small envelope at the moment because we're a stovable jet. It's 350 knots, 30,000 feet, 0.8.
Well, it's a 1.630 knots, 60,000 foot type aeroplane. So we're in the bottom left-hand corner. That's all we need to do. But we've expanded the AOA and the G envelope sufficient for what we need to do. We've played with the engine. We've played with the speed brake. That's air braking in English. Um, alternate gear. There's a backup gear system. We've played with this power limit mode. If you lose the generators and you're on the battery for the flight controls, then we go into a reduced control authority mode. It's a get-you-home mode so that you're not draining the battery too quickly. We checked that out. We did fuel dump refuel probe. This is the bit I really want to talk about, stovel doors. And I'm just going to come out of this because for some reason known only to Bill Gates, this won't work. This is just some video of the most recent work that we've been doing. Here we are starting to open the doors. We've got flight test capability of opening the doors individually. Here's opening all the doors. And that's the sequence that we will open all the doors. We're still flying conventionally. We're not spinning up the lift fan. We're just flying along, making sure that the airplane is nice with all these strange doors open. If you look at that big uh, clamshell door at the top there, that is obviously very destabilizing. It's the wrong angle, it's the wrong shape, and it's clearly going to affect the, the fins and the tails down the back. Bit of fuel dump here. It's a stealthy jet, so you can't have big pipes and holes in it. So we have stealthy diamond-shaped grills underneath the wing for fuel dump. And as you can see, it was dribbling a bit there, so we fixed that. And look at the doors there, stealthy doors for the refuel probe. Obviously, you're not stealthy when it's out, but when you tidy it up again, you go stealthy. So, stealth complicates everything. Um, anyway, that's the sort of stuff that we've been doing recently. Let me. I just want to mention the stovel doors stuff because when we open the stovel doors, flying conventionally, gear down, but opening the stovel doors, that's the first time our models have not matched well we had a significant error in our aerodynamic model with the door open. And idiot part, this is the problem with fly-by-wire aeroplanes. The pilot in the cockpit of a fly-by-wire aeroplane just sees apparent controllability, apparent stability, apparent responses. You ask it to roll, it rolls. You ask it to pitch, it pitches. You've got no direct feedback of how hard is the poor little airplane working to give you that roll, to give you that pitch. So idiot pilot opens the doors. Okay, there's a bit of extra drag. That isn't a surprise. What was a surprise was the drag was much more than we expected. We'd expected a 7% increase in thrust for the door. We needed a 20% increase in thrust for the door. Oh, that's different. I noticed that. I also noticed the vibration. We got a lot of vibration with the door open. And it's Big vortices coming off that door, bashing the fins down the back, affecting the horizontal tails down the back. So I feel the vibration. I feel the drag. I don't feel the fact that the directional stability, which we predicted to be positive, has gone negative. We were flying negative stability there. doesn't mean you lose the airplane. It doesn't mean you depart. It just means that the control surfaces are working a lot harder than they should be. There's nothing to tell me that that's going on. And that, to me, is one of the lessons that I'm learning about flight testing in this modern age, is that you, the pilot, are so dependent on the guys in the control room. Everything's telemetered. 
you know, high bandwidth telemetry down to the ground. The guys are looking at TV screens. There's 25 guys in the room, all experts, all poring over their specialization. And they're the guys who, ooh, we don't like that. Let's stop doing this. Let's go home quietly. So that's where we were when we stopped flying uh, uh, August, September last year. The airplane's been on various layups since then, and it's just finished that pit testing. It's due to start flying again next month. What we're going to do when we start flying is we've amended the model, this aerodynamic model that we had. We've changed it because we learned from flight test it was wrong. So we've put a new model in, and we've redesigned the control law about the new model. So the first job we do is check the fixes, make sure that it now has the stability that we expect and the response that we expect. Once we've done that, we then, this is a silly slide, please don't bother with this, but uh, basically we start high and relatively fast. This is where we're going to do our first conversion. About 200 knots, about 5,000 feet. Gives us altitude in hand if anything is not quite as we predict. And then we build down from there, 3,000 feet initially, and then once we're happy at 3,000 feet, we'll come back and do a slow landing. So our first experiment, if you like, close to the ground is going to be a slow landing. Relatively high speed. It's really a conventional speed, but we're in stable mode. And then from there onwards, this bit along the bottom here is building down in little steps. Each one of those things represents not one test point, it's a series of test points, and we build down in little steps until eventually we get to a hover, the thrust is good, the handling is good, and then the next day we come back, hopefully, and do the vertical landing. And then there's a big, again, big smile, big pot of gold, big rejoicing, and there'll be lots of razzmatazz when we get down to the first vertical landing. These are some of the rules that we've given ourselves, just as a progressive. Progressive is the thing that keeps springing to mind in the way we're doing this flight test. There's nothing hasty about this. It's all very, very slow. Quick uh, cartoon on the doors. It's a stealthy airplane. The last airplane I flew with Bombay was the Buccaneer. Uh, I guess the camera's still around, isn't it, in some forces, but it's a long time since we've had a fast jet airplane with a Bombay. Uh, inside it, on that top left-hand picture, um, you've got two big weapons. They're smart weapons, air-to-surface weapons. Um, and then on the doors, the inner doors, that's where your AMRAMs sit air-to-air missiles. And those, those doors are operating really, really slowly. In reality, they open and close in 1.6 seconds. So they open, you drop it, or fire it, they close. So you're staying stealthy as long as you possibly can. So that's where the hydraulics on the airplane are sized. The hydraulics is sized to open these doors, get the weapon out, and close the doors really, really quickly. And then the reason I'm showing you this is we also use the doors in stovel mode for lift improvement. It's very similar to what you see underneath a Harrier 2, the AV-8B, or the GR7, GR9 in, in RAF service. It's got strakes under the fuselage, and that's designed to... You're a ping-pong ball on the top of a fountain. You're coming down, the fountain bounces off the ground back up to the aeroplane, and if you can capture some of that, you get some free thrust, if you like. The reflective thrust is free. And it also, more importantly, stops that hot air bouncing around the airplane, getting on top of the airplane, and in our case, getting in the lift fan intake. Hot air is bad for the lift fan. It's also bad for the core engine, 
which has an auxiliary intake with doors behind the lift fan. So we're, we're gaining a little bit of direct thrust by capturing it with these lids, doors, and we're also stopping hot gas going into the engines. Um, I mentioned doors. There's That was my last count. Six gear doors, six weapon bay doors, 11 stovable doors. They've all got to be... A door's a door. You open it, you close it. You open it, you close it. It's easy. It's not. Because you're being stealthy. So the doors have to be closed to microscopic... I'm exaggerating. They've got to be closed really, really precisely. You can't have a door you know, cracked open a quarter of an inch because your stealth just get blown away. They've got to be closed really, really precisely. So you end up with the door closing and then they're grabbed by locks, a locking mechanism that sort of wraps around inside them and pulls them tight. So something as simple as doors has caused us real problems. That first flight, we didn't raise the gear because we ran out of fuel. In retrospect, it was the joy that we didn't because the second flight, we did raise the gear and immediately we had problems. We couldn't close the main gear door. Here's another little video of it. Um, main gear door, that's shown there on the on the side there, there's actually two doors. There's a door in front of that which tidies itself up and closes. And then there's that door which is actually alongside the leg. Um, let me just show you this video to show you what happened on flight two. Everything is chased. We have video for everything nowadays. So spies in the cab, spies outside. There's no, there's no peace nowadays as a test pilot. Here's the gear coming up. You just saw the front door opening, back door closing. But you see, it doesn't close properly. Because it doesn't close properly, it keeps the front door open. So you end up looking like that. Front door fully open, back door not quite closed. And it's a sequential thing, because the rear doors didn't close. It doesn't allow the front doors to close. Ever since then, we've been raising the gear below 200 knots, because below 200 knots, the air load is low enough for us to successfully close that rear door, and then the front doors will close as well. Clearly, we don't want to have to do that. The gear limit is supposed to be 255 for gear retraction. And 200 knots is a real pain. Conventional takeoff, you're getting airborne at 175, 180 when you're heavy. And to have a gear limit of 200 knots is a real pain in the backside. So there's a fix coming along for that, a hardware and a software fix. Other things about the doors, that's pointing now to the lower lift fan doors. In front of them are the nose gear doors. Then there's the lower lift fan doors. And then behind them, closed on this picture, are the weapon bay doors. The weapon bay doors and the lower lift fan doors sweep through the same bit of space. So you have to make sure you don't move them both at the same time. In production, it's all automated. So the pilot just does what he likes and the airplane looks after him. Because we're smart in flight tests and we want to do things uh, incrementally, we want to open one door and then another door, not all in sequence, we can get our knickers in a twist and we can beat the system. And we have beaten the system twice on the ground and we have damaged the doors by bashing them into each other on the ground. And it wasn't me, touch wood. Uh, but worry, again, that to me is a procedural thing. It's a flight test learning point. Um, the other thing about the doors in general is these locks, these clever locks to squeeze them really tight are the bane of our lives at the moment. It's not easy to do, obviously, otherwise we'd have done it. 
we're having persistent problems, particularly with the upper lift fan door, that big one on the top. When we've closed it, it closes. We know it's closed. We can see it's closed. But the op blocks aren't quite grabbing it right. And so their little reporting chain says, I'm not sure. And because it says, I'm not sure, we go into a, a fail-safe mode in the flight controls just to make sure that we're all right. So we're having lots of problems with, with the doors still at the moment. Enough on the doors. Um, I want to talk a little bit about, about flight controls. Um, we have made some dramatic changes. Um, this is a, a silly um, slide, really, just trying to emphasize as a baby Harrier pilot when you hit the training unit at Wittering and they try and beat it into your thick head, this is what you need to concentrate on. It's basically keep the angle of attack under control, keep the side slip under control, and make sure you've got performance, which means monitor the engine. And you're going angle of attack, side slip, engine, angle of attack, side slip, engine, angle of attack, side slip, engine. I know, by the way, you're still flying the airplane and decelerating and doing what you're supposed to. And initially, it's a very strange environment for a baby pilot. So it's a really high workload. It's always been recognized. It's always been a high-training demand airplane. Um, and the, these are some of the problems with the legacy of the Harrier. Um, on the left-hand side, you've got a throttle and a nozzle vector lever. Um, and it's not, you aren't dancing from one lever to the other, but your hand is at various times going from one to the other, pausing for a few seconds and then going back and making an adjustment and then maybe coming back again. So you're not, it's not a living blur with your left hand, but you are nevertheless operating two levers and the results of getting them wrong and making some, uh, I don't know what the words are, basic fundamental mechanical errors you know, brain in neutral, brain busy thinking about something else, you can have some severe problems if you get that wrong. The, the cartoon on the top is a very simple form of just the pitch channel, the flight control channel in pitch. It was designed, it first flew P1127 in 1960, so this concept is late 1950s in terms of technology. And ever since then, we've improved the auto stabs which are very low authority, but the basic control is unchanged. It's 1950s design. There is no computer that is helping the pilot look after the angle of attack, look after the side slip, look after the engine. And the bottom right I've stolen from the Wittering, the OCU, the training unit there, just some graphics of the airplane that the Harrier, it's a lump of lead in the hover, but it's an unstable lump of lead in the hover. If left to its own devices, it's not instant, it's not quick, but it will slowly diverge in yaw, it will slowly diverge in pitch, and the height channel, the up and down is thrust, so if you don't keep an eye on it, it will drift up, it will drift down. You, the pilot, have to keep busy keeping on top of it all the time. If you don't, then the cartoon bottom right is what happens if you have missed a trick and you've allowed the side slip to develop, not in the hover, higher speeds, 60 knots, 80 knots, 90 knots, 100 knots, Bernoulli's over the wing, lift over the wing. If you allow side slip to develop, and it's very easy if there's a crosswind of 50 knots and you're only doing 60, then the angle that you need to fly to track down the runway but into the relative wind, into the air mass, it looks horrendous and it's very unnatural until you get used to it. So it's very easy to set up big side slips, 
If there's angle attack on the airplane, it's got very strong dihedral effect, so it rolls on you, and you haven't got the control power to stop it. That's why we have lost Harry's in the past. Angle of attack, side slip, engine. Angle of attack, side slip, engine. High workload. What we've done with, that's what happens if you get it wrong. Um, it's nearer 50 years than 40 years later. So damn it, we ought to have fixed it. And we have. Um, please don't bother with this. It's just, uh, I think I understand it, which is amazing. It's so complex what we do with these models of the engine and the flight controls. And the clever kids who do the, the design of the control law so that we, the pilot and the simulator, get what we want. It's our fault if we don't get what we want because we say we would like it to do this when we do this with a stick. We would like it to do this when we do this with a throttle. And they've got the ability nowadays with fly-by-wire to match the aeroplane to the pilot's request. It's not just one pilot. It's a group of pilots, obviously. Um, the things I'll just show you briefly, though, are... Here's where you can convert. You can be either conventional or in stovel mode, basically between about 150 knots and 250 knots. So that's where you press the button to convert after takeoff before landing. The pitch stick is interesting. Here it's entirely conventional. You pitch it and the airplane pitches. By the time you've decelerated to hover speeds, you, the pilot, have no control of pitch. The airplane puts the attitude correct. And what you're doing with a stick now is you're not commanding pitch rate, you're commanding height rate. If you let go of the stick, height rate equals zero, which happens to be a hover. If you want to climb, you pull back on the stick and hold. And it will slowly climb. If you want to land, you push forward on the stick and hold, and it will slowly come down. So it's very different. No pitch control for the pilot in the hover. And here the throttle, roll stick and rudder pedals are pretty conventional, but the throttle, again, a dramatic change from any airplane that I'm aware of, not just Stovall airplanes, any airplane. When we go into Stovall mode in flight, the throttle becomes an axel, I want to go faster, a diesel, I want to go slower, and in the middle is speed hold. Fortunately, for the pilot, it looks a lot easier, because this is what the pilot sees. He sees a stick that says, roll right, roll left, very conventional, a stick that says go up, go down. The theory is that at 400 knots, 500 knots, 600 knots, if you want to go up, you ease back on the stick. You're actually changing the pitch attitude. You're actually changing the AOA. The airplane starts to climb. But it looks to the pilot like you're changing flight path upwards by pulling back on the stick. And we've simply gone all the way so that in the hover, it's still doing the same. You pull back on the stick, you want to go upwards. You push forward on the stick, you want to go down. And then I mentioned the throttle there. It looks like speed hold. And we grow a little notch in the throttle. It's a, it's a active throttle. It's not just fly-by-wire. The stick is an active stick. You can put uh, feedback. You can change the feedback through the force sensors on the stick. The same with the throttle. We can do things. So we can invent a little detent on the throttle. So when you go to stowel mode, there's a little detent that grows. You park the throttle in the detent. And you've got speed hold. Which is very nice. If you're zero speed in the hover, that's where you want to stay. If you're co-speed with a ship, that's where you want to stay. This is what the cockpit really looks like. Um, the reds are there just to stop feet kicking the stick and the throttle. So that's obviously not what the stick and the throttle really look like. Very simple cockpit. Notice the switches. 
there aren't any. There are a few, but there are very, very few switches. Um, and the big obvious thing in the front there, there's no head-up display because that's on the visor, that's on the helmet. But the really way you, you interface with the airplane is a big screen. It's 20 by 8 inches, I think. Um, and it's touchy, you know, it's like modern computers, you can touch it and it talks and it, and it responds. Uh, you can slew HOTAS sensors around on it. We are not there yet, but the intention is to put voice command into the airplane as well. So you'll be able to voice command and tell the airplane to do some fairly basic things. Not flight control stuff, but, you know, radios and, and, and basic systems. So that's what the cockpit looks like. But fundamentally, if you think formation, I think any, any, any fast jet pilot will know that when you're in formation, you go up a little bit, you go down a little bit, you go right a little bit, you go left a little bit, formating on your mate or the tank or whatever it happens to be. And you go forward a bit and backwards a bit with your left hand. What you now have to think is when you're in the hover, you're formating on the airfield, you're formating on the ship. It's just that you're doing it at zero speed or zero relative speed. So the, the flight controls feel, look like to the pilot, you're in formation. And this is, on one hand, very natural. On the other hand, extremely unnatural. Because all the rest of the time, every other airplane you've ever flown, including this one when you're flying it conventionally, the throttles are throttle. So there's, there's a... And this is where we end up with um, some of the things that intrigue me about it. They're considerations for where we are starting this flight test process. Workload, much better. Nearly carefree. Uh, you can go to full back stick, it looks after the end of attack. You can put full rudder on, it looks after the side stick. The engine, we've got some protections to make it nearly carefree. It's not quite, but it's nearly, much easier. Apparent simplicity, from the pilot's point of view, it's a doddle. The design effort and the testing effort to make sure that the design hasn't got any bugs in it, hasn't got any loopholes in it, is intense. And then you only need two hands, which is rather nice. And these are the things that worry me as we enter flight test. The complexity for those guys in the control room monitoring what's going on is hugely higher than anything that I've been associated with in the past. Weight on wheels becomes a key thing. I mentioned that the throttle is a axle decel in the hover. To land, you push forward on the stick. What tells the thrust, what tells the engine to go to idle on touchdown? It's not the pilot, because it's an axle diesel controller. It's the weight on wheels. When the gear hits the ground and weight on wheels gets tripped, it says you've landed. So it puts the engine to idle after touchdown. Weight on wheels is really important for a whole variety of... The claw is the control law. And there's a whole bunch of sub-modes which the weight on wheels really, really needs to, to, to be good. Other things that are concerning us at the moment, uh, that big nozzle at the back, the articulating nozzle at the back, when we're flying an approach, the Harrier flew a very flat attitude. Uh, it was basically driven by the gear configuration, a, a tandem gear configuration. You really needed to touch down fairly flat. You took off fairly flat and then adjusted. You landed fairly flat. This airplane, it's more conventional. We fly it entirely conventionally for the pilot, High angle of attack, Bernoulli's over the wing, lift over the wing, it all helps. But that puts the core nozzle relatively close to the ground, and we are concerned 
heavy touchdowns, high sink rates, maybe we're on the ship and we touch down heavily on the ship and the ship's coming up to meet us, then the clearance at the back is small. So we are very cog cognizant of ground clearance. We've actually built an algorithm into the aeroplane. Every time we do a takeoff, every time we do a landing, the algorithm looks at what was the actual, from flight test instrumentation, what was the actual gear depression, what was the actual attitude, where was the nozzle in terms of deflection, and we calculate from that the clearance was 11.3 inches, the clearance was 9.2 inches, allows us to build down progressively. And then the thing I mentioned before, the throttle isn't a throttle. Um, there are cognitive errors because habits of a lifetime, and it's not just me being old, this is all pilots who fly the airplane. Every other airplane they've ever flown, it's a throttle. This airplane, it isn't. It brings, it's, it's, it's attractive and it's, it's negative at the same time. Nearly finished. Um, here we are with, um, recovery to the ship. This is, LHD is the current US Marine Corps ship. It's about the same size as the Invincible class. Doesn't have a speed jump. They operate all sorts of it, obviously the V-22 on it there. Um, there's a tram line painted on it, that's what you're going to take off from, that's what you're going to land on. And what we're doing when we are traditionally joining a ship is we stop alongside. We come alongside, we decelerate alongside, so you're sitting entirely in the hover, so you're sitting purely on thrust. So the thrust has got to equal, equal the weight, simple physics. Um, on the Harrier family, it's quite a trick. There's a lot of judgment goes in about when the nozzles go down, uh, how you judge it to get the nozzles down at the right time. You might need to adjust the nozzles and try it again. On the Sea Harrier, we put a nozzle nudge on the speed brake control to make it easier for the pilot because you are quite busy adjusting the vector of the thrust to make sure that you arrive in the right place alongside the ship. This aeroplane, We've got an autopilot, we've got an auto throttle. We're not using it in the early days, but we will have a single button to press on the throttle which says, take me to the hover alongside the ship. And the airplane will do the appropriate deceleration and the thrust will come up and the nozzles will go down appropriately and you will be delivered alongside the ship. Job two is just move across and uh, we've got, this is where you think formation, think formation, think formation, and then you do the right things with your left hand and your right hand, you think formation. And then the landing, it's just push forward on the stick, hit the deck, weight on wheels, good, thrust goes to idle. We actually tell the pilot he's made weight on wheels because it's difficult to tell you've got weight on wheels. We, because we've got an active throttle, we back drive the throttle. The throttle's in this mid position because you're co-speed with the ship. When you hit the deck, we backdrive the throttle to idle. And that's a fabulous cue to the pilot. Oh, it's the instructor in the back seat who is closing the throttle for the student pilot. Tactile is great. The issue, it's, it's going to be really easy. This airplane is going to be, compared to the legacy, it's going to be so easy to fly back to the ship. But you're dependent upon the thrust if you do it this way. And so this is the great next British invention that I mentioned earlier. We've now got a bigger ship, CVF, coming along lines, 2000, whenever, 16-ish. CVF is a big ship. Um, invincible LHDs, much, much smaller, particularly the width is the issue. 
what this allows us to do is look at this concept and um, it's called uh, ship rolling vertical landing. We've done rolling vertical landings land-based for years and years and years. Two reasons. One is it brings back extra payload. On the legacy, it's not a lot of extra payload because of the flat attitude, not a very big wing, not very many Bernoullis, so you don't bring back much extra payload. But you do bring back some. On this aeroplane, if we're flying at 60 knots airspeed, we still haven't got the figure exactly right, but it's somewhere between two and four thousand pounds of extra, extra bring back, extra above what you could do vertically. The spec that we're required to meet, and we are meeting, calls for just shy of five thousand pounds bring back vertical landing. So with this capability, you can bring back seven to nine thousand pounds bring back. Why do you want to do that? It's because those stealthy weapons that you're carrying around, you might not have fired them. They're expensive weapons. We don't do sort of mass bombing anymore. Every weapon is expensive. If you haven't dropped it, you want to bring it back. And in the Gulf temperatures, hot temperatures, low pressures, any Stovall airplane struggles. 5,000 pounds, two bombs, two AMRAMs, a bit of fuel, that 5,000 pounds gets eaten up, particularly at high temperatures, where you can't bring 5,000 pounds back. It, it suffers dramatically at higher temperatures. This boosts us back up to above the 5,000 pounds, allows us to bring back the, the extra stuff. So the airplane flies at about 60 knots. The ship steamed into the wind. Our new ships can do 25 knots, so we've planned for 25 knots wind over deck. If there's any natural wind, the ship doesn't have to steam as fast as long as it can generate 25 knots wind over deck for us. So we're closing the ship at 35 knots. So we're approaching the ship at a fast taxi speed, 35 knots. And this is what it looks like. There's a little video here showing. This is in the simulator. We're not doing this yet, obviously. <laughs> simulator at Wharton. Top left is what it looks like from the ship. It's all very stable. And what the guy here is doing is he's flying a six degree approach, he's, he's, he's basically flying to a, doesn't show up very well there, but there's a marking on the deck and he's flying that bar to those white lights on the deck. You may have noticed that the lights on the deck were moving. That was because the ship pitches and heaves and you can seduce the pilot into thinking it's a steady aiming point if you run lights up and down the deck. That's a kinetic development which is going to go into CVF. Again, the next great British invention for maritime aviation. This is just the start of a run in the dark. It's really just to show what we can do with the simulators nowadays. And here's a picture showing the imagery that the pilot is going to see on this video. You can move your head and look at the ship at night. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a combined sensor with, with a camera on your helmet and also infrared sensors around the airplane. So um, that's the sort of capability that we're getting. I'm running out of steam, thank goodness. Um, I think I'll quit there. To me, what the airplane is doing is um, it's taking what I believe to be a fabulous concept, the Stover concept, which has been around now for nearly 50 years. By the time the Harry goes out of service, it will have been in service for nearly 60 years. It will have been in service for more than 50% of the time since the Wright brothers got airborne with the first powered aeroplanes. 
So Stovall has been around a long time. It has stood the test of time. And to me, this is, uh, this is Boom Trenchard, the father of the Air Force, summarizing it. That's what Stovall gives you. It gives you flexibility of basing. You can operate from a big ship, a small ship, an austere site, a big airfield, a high airfield. Wherever you want to operate, you can operate from. And now we're adding stealth and all the high-tech stuff and easy for the pilot. Thank you all very much. Good evening. Thank you very much for an excellent lecture. Very interesting. If we take a war scenario, and the enemy has got AWACS capability. Surely he's going to pick up your signature from the takeoff point until you're high enough to go in uh, forward uh, mode. Therefore, your doors are open. He's picking up a signature. Uh, there's, there's absolutely no. As soon as we put the gear down, we're not stealthy. No aeroplane is stealthy with the gear down. We're clearly not stealthy with all these doors open in stovable mode. Um, so if there is a guy sitting in a ditch two miles away from, away from the airfield with a handheld SAM, he's going to get you. So you're very dependent in the environs of the airfield that you're operating from or the ship that you're operating from. You need protection. You need the guys on the ground, on their patrols, scouring the land, making sure that there's no bad guys about. I'm not a stealth expert. I'm not a mission systems expert. My understanding is once you've got airborne, yes, anybody knows where you're operating from. It's not a secret that you're operating from a ship. But when you clean up, when you go into conventional mode, when you raise the gear, you are stealthy. And uh, it then becomes exceptionally difficult for anybody to keep tabs on where you're going. So yes, you're clearly vulnerable close to home. There's no way around that. But when you're in bad guy territory, and hopefully that's, you know, 50 miles, 100 miles, 200 miles away from where you are, then you are far enough away, long enough away for him to have lost you. And if he's flying around in an AWACS, then I think us good guys are going to shoot down his AWACS anyway, aren't we? So we're hoping that the threat, I guess I'm hoping that the threat is really from land-based detectors. And by the time you're high enough to be in their view, stealthy. That's a bit of a guess. Uh, Ian Strawn, I'm an ex-Boscombe guy. Things have moved on since uh, I, I was on Salisbury Plain. Uh, concentrating on uh, uh, stability and control, uh, you said that the operational role, of course, would not involve vertical takeoffs, but presumably you're going to test those. And I had the privilege of being at Wharton uh, and actually flying uh, your, your uh, simulator, the, the, the B model, and hovering uh, on one side of a ship and landing on the ship. Uh, this was quite remarkable to me, uh, having only stick and throttle. I still don't know quite what I did, except I followed what people told me. Could you take us in slightly slower time how you come to a transition uh, and then get on the, on the deck with only two controls operating? It's magic. There's no doubt about it. Um, gosh, I, I'm not sure I'm clear enough in my own mind to be able to describe it. Um, 
it all boils down to the fact that what you're doing with the right hand is you're simply controlling flight path. All of us HUD cripples were so used to having a flight path symbol in the head of display, it's now in the visor. We've still got a flight path symbol. A flight path symbol, it's where you're going. You point it, and that's where you're going to go. You point it at a ship, you will hit the ship. You point it alongside the ship, you will end up alongside the ship. With your left hand, you're saying, how fast do you want to go? Speed hold in the middle, go faster, go slower. So when you want to decelerate, the, the pilot task is just like joining up on your buddy. You know, your buddy's taken off, you're behind him, you join up on him. It's exactly the same task. The same task as joining up on a, on a tanker. It's exactly the same role. You put the flight path alongside the guy you want to formate on, and you judge it with your left hand to decelerate and then capture his speed. It's a, it's a, it's a task that we're very, very, very familiar with. What's actually happening in the control law is we don't control flight path directly with a stick. We control pitch rate. At the higher speed, we're controlling pitch rate. So the pilot wants to raise the flight path mark. It's too low. He wants to pull it up. He pitches the aeroplane. The aeroplane says he's pitched it. I know what angle of attack I should be flying at. The aeroplane knows what angle of attack it should be flying at. And so it says, he's pitched the airplane up, the angle of attack has increased. To put the angle of attack back to where it should be, it puts a bit of nozzle down, and it puts a bit of power up. And then the angle of attack is back on the schedule. The effect from the pilot is that he sees an apparent change in the flight path. So it feels like you're flying flight path. What's actually happening is you change the pitch attitude, the angle of attack gets looked after, and the result is a flight path change. To change the angle of attack, it's a bit of nozzle and it's a bit of power. And the controller just does that all the time as you decelerate. And with your left hand, when you're asking for a deceleration, for instance, it's basically saying he wants to decelerate at 0.1G. I'm doing 150 knots. To get 0.1G, I will look at my little model. And my model says 150 knots to generate 0.1G. We need to push the nozzles forward by 17 degrees and we're going to need to add percent of thrust. So it does that and then it closes loop like all fly-by-wire systems do and says it's not quite got 0.1g, it's actually got 0.09g therefore we'll adjust it to give them the 0.1g that it asked for. And that's about the limit of my knowledge. It's, it, it, the, the beauty is it's transparent to the pilot. The problem is that for us in flight tests it's ferociously complex. Hi there. Hi there. Uh, Tim Robinson from the Society's uh, Publications Department. Uh, thanks very much for that uh, fascinating briefing, Graham. That's a real insight into the programme. Uh, two quick questions, if I may. Uh, the first one is you mentioned the uh, the nozzle, the rear nozzle, sort of ground clearance and how you're keeping a, a, a sharp eye on that. Do you envisage that being a uh, an issue with the, the, when you come to detest ski jump? And, and my second question really is, um, you're talking about the, the, the day war one, you know, kind of, of the war, it's stealthy. Um, is there a capacity to jettison the, the pylons if you get to day three or day four of the war and, and up pop a, a load of bad guys who, you know, you kind of missed on day one? Can you get rid of the external stores pylons and go fully stealth? Thanks. I'll answer the second question first because that's easy. No. Once you put the pylons on, they're bolted on. So you are declaring your intent that you've suppressed all the bad guy. 
and all you're doing now is supporting your own troops. You know, the typical sort of business that's going on in the Gulf for the last how many years? 15, 18 years. So day one, day two, day three, you stay stealthy, internal weapons only. And then once you've suppressed things, you are non-stealth with the pylons. That was easy. The other one about um, clearance, the back-end clearance, uh, we, we want to rotate the airplane. We want to get the lift out of the wing, and we need that for the approach case, for the slow landings, for the very slow landings. We're, we're still using the lift on the wing, so we are nose-high. We're basically 12A away, so the airplane is quite nose-high, which worries us. One of the one of the worry is the wrong word. We like to call them watch items. We watch these things very carefully. Um, there are mitigations. We can do things. We can trim the airplane nose down. We can sacrifice a couple of degrees of angle attack. It's not good for performance, but clearly it's good for if you if you change the attitude by two degrees, you gain six inches of clearance. So it's you know it's just geometry from that point of view. We don't want to do that because you're losing lift, you're losing performance. Um, so the areas that we're particularly intrigued by, ski jump, surprisingly, isn't an issue, because the airplane, as on all ski jumps, people think ski jump is a real you know, roller coaster ride. It's not. It's a very gentle, gradual, smooth, increasing G, and not an awful lot. It's nothing like a roller coaster on, on the fairground sort of thing. It's a smooth increment of G, and the airplane gets spat off the end at the right attitude to go fly. So there's no rotation at the end of a ski jump. The worries that we've got are flat deck stows for the US Marine Corps, where they haven't got ski jumps. The US Navy won't let them build ski jumps for a whole variety of politi politic reasons. So they have to do flat deck stows. And to get optimum performance out of this wing, we're rotating to 18 degrees AOA for the optimum performance stow. That's a very nose high, which puts the three BSD, the, 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 the nozzle at the back, close to the deck. But it swings around about. The airplane is getting light on its wheels. You accelerate down the deck, it's getting light on its wheels. You rotate, the, the Bernoulli's taking effect, the lift builds, so you get light on the wheels as the nozzle is going down. And we think we're going to get away with it, is what it boils down to. But again, it's a watch item. We're going to be very careful as we build. The initial stows that we do in the flight test program are going to be not more than 12 degrees attitude, just to make sure we've got good clearance. The other watch area for the clearance is the that ship-rolling vertical landing that I talked about. The ship-rolling vertical landing. We're at 60 knots. We want to keep the 12A away if we can for the lift, for this performance benefit. And then if the ship happens to be coming up. Ships aren't flat, aren't steady, aren't solid. They do nasty things. They heave and they pitch. And if it happens to be heaving and pitching at just the wrong time, then you could end up with compromising this clearance. And there's a lot of very clever work going on. Again, Kinetica involved, BAE are involved in looking at ways of predicting ship motion for the future. In the past, we've sort of recorded it and say, okay, that was a big wave you know, ten, 10 minutes ago, and maybe there'll be another big wave in 20 minutes. But now we're looking at techniques of looking more closely at the, the swell patterns, the wave patterns, on a historic and a predictive basis, perhaps even having, I don't know, 
a laser or something squirting out the front of a ship looking for the big waves. And then based upon that, it's not beyond the wit of man to time your arrival for a, for a quiescent period, for, for a period when the ship isn't pitching and heaving too much. So there's, it's a watch item, and it's, it's a very serious watch item, and we really don't want to have to sacrifice performance. But we'd still have a huge gain over a vertical landing, but it might not be quite as much if we had to trim the AOA down. Graham, another question. Um, on this airplane, how does the pilot know when he's running out of something? I mean, on a Harrier, if he's running out of control, he can feel the stick going to the, the edge. If he's running out of engine power, he can see the JPT coming up to the limits or whatever. Um, on this airplane, it's doing all the work for you. How do you know that it's really struggling? To, to me, that is, that's a classic problem with fly-by-wire. Um, we lost a tornado at Wharton 15 years ago, 10 years ago, 12 years ago. That was a FOD problem in an actuator down the back end. One of the surfaces ran away to full travel. The other surface ran away in the opposite direction to correct it. And I forget the exact figure. It was something like 13 seconds after the problem occurred was the first time that the pilot noticed anything. Because that's what fly-by-wire does. It's apparent controlling the cockpit. It's flying nicely. You've got no way of telling that a surface is approaching its limits and the other surfaces are all working their socks off correcting for it. That's a fundamental issue with fly-by-wire, F-16 grip, and all the airplanes since the 1970s, it's, it's a fundamental issue with fly-by-wire, and nobody's come up with a solution that I'm aware of. It's just a fact of life with fly-by-wire. The additional thing that we're doing with this, and, and I, I'm not, honestly, I'm not too worried about it on, fly, on that aspect, because we've been doing it since the 1970s. We do understand that. And the way that the airplanes are designed and the redundancy of the airplanes for failures is now sufficiently robust that you can have failures. JSF, you get a failure and it's identified. And because this model of the airplane lives in the airplane, you can say, we've lost the right-hand horizontal tail. It's at 7 degrees trailing edge up. And it's drifting. It's now at 11 degrees trailing edge up. The model knows what to do. It's not a crude closed-loop fly-by-wire. It's a very intelligent fly-by-wire with an outer closed loop just to tidy it up. The thing that we're losing from the Harrier is the instinctive throttle is needing to go up, going up, going up, going up, going up, which it's a sort of, again, it's a tactile thing. I personally love tactile because it's, you, you, you learn an instinct with a Harrier that as you slow down, the throttle is going up and up and up. And you've done it so many times that you know by the time it got to there, you haven't got very much left. You are also monitoring the engine temperature, the engine RPMs, a bunch of other stuff you are monitoring on instruments, which is where the, the real high workload comes. But there's a sort of a instinctive background tactile thing. We've lost that. It's not there because we haven't got a throttle anymore. It's an Axel diesel controller. What we're doing uh, in mitigation, um, and it'll be there by the time the airplane enters service is we are basically using the engine to say pilot I'm working too hard so the engine puts its hand up and says you have got a very limited thrust margin left whatever you're doing now you may consider stopping it you can you you, you can generate you can require a lot of thrust uh, 
by slowing down too much. That's the obvious thing. You're too heavy. You slow down too much. You fall into a black hole and you start sinking. That's a fairly obvious one. It's very easy to correct for that. We raise the flag when the thrust gets too high. And because we're clever, we stop the deceleration. If the pilot is commanding a deceleration, we say, no, we're not going to ignore you. We're going to hold speed. So you can be commanding a deceleration. When the thrust gets too high, it stops. What we can't do anything about is the guy who gets to that position and he's very marginal on thrust and then he puts on 10 degrees of bank or 15 degrees of bank. Because if you think about it, it's the cosine rule, cosine of 10 or whatever it is, you are no longer pointing your thrust straight down. So you can still get yourself into a black hole. You can't predict what the idiot pilot might need to do. You can help him with this mitigation of stopping the decel, but the pilot still has to understand the fundamentals of Stovall thrust management. Uh, Barry Tomlinson, I think we're distant cousins. Must be. Um, Must be. Uh, first of all, I'd like to bang a little drum for the research and development that's gone on in the UK that's enabled this aircraft uh, to have its, uh, its, its novel flight control. Um, I, I'm XRE Bedford, where we've had, where we initiated the VARP program in 1986. So it's taken, so 20 years and more later, uh, all, all, all the advanced flight control, courtesy of the boffins, is now uh, enabling you to sit there comfortably. So I just wanted to pay a little tribute to uh, to the team who've done that. I agree. And you were part of that. Um, I, I, I do have a question. My question is, what... What do you think of the training challenges now for this new aircraft? And can, you, can the simulator do it all? I'll answer the first one, the second one first. The simulator can definitely do it all. Simulators nowadays are fantastic. Um, I, I, I've been a disbeliever of simulators. You know, when I was a baby pilot, they were awful, dreadful, barely flyable, particularly the Harrier simulators. The only people who would fly them were the simulator engineers. Pilots went to fly them and crashed all the time. They were dreadful. Nowadays, we're at the stage where the simulator is so good, the visuals aren't quite perfect. The vibrations aren't, the noises, the smells aren't quite perfect. But the way the airplane responds are absolutely 99.9% .9 there. It's real. And obviously, you can throw in all the, all the failures, all the, all the redundancies, all the backups, the, the sub-modes. You can expose the guy to all those in the simulator. And we, we do, in flight tests, we've designed the airplane in the simulator, and then we train ourselves before we get to a particular stage of the flight test program that's interesting. We go and we inflict upon ourselves horizontal tail failures and doors getting stuck in very... And we reconfigure it and we go through all the motions to make sure that we can still understand it and handle it. And it's a very, very small step from that to the full mission system simulators that will be bought in large quantities for the, for the armed forces. The simulator side of it is going to be really, really easy. Um, the actual training for this unique Stovall mode, um, the jury to me is out a little bit on. Um, 
it's absolutely crystal clear to me that it's 2000 and something, not 1960. We have made the airplane safe. We don't have to worry about angle of attack. We don't have to worry about side slip. And to a much reduced effect, we don't have to worry about the engine. We present downwind. We tell the pilot you can hover. Your weight is correct for hover. If he can't hover, downwind, we tell him your minimum approach speed is 87 knots. Don't try and go slower than 87 knots. That's information that didn't exist on the legacy. So we've given them a real improvement in situational awareness. Uh, and the safety, the fundamental safety of a fly-by-wire aeroplane that looks after the pilot instead of a, a pilot who spent all his time looking after the aeroplane on the Harrier, that's a fundamental change. The downside of where we are is that, as I mentioned earlier, we've got an aeroplane that you have to think very differently. And it's not just different from the Harrier. It's different from every other aeroplane. Every other aeroplane that you fly, um, people call it front side and back side. Front side means that you're flying flight path with your right hand, which is what you do at high speed. And back side means that you're flying flight path up and down with your left hand, which is clearly what a Harrier does in the hover. It's clearly what a helicopter does in the hover. But equally, it's what every conventional aeroplane does to some degree on the approach. I fly F-18s now as my secondary aeroplane, and you watch the F-18 pilots fly, and they get to approach speed, and then the flight path control, the meatball control, is with this hand. They're going up and down on the power to control flight path. So there is a fundamental ingrained training in all pilots, bar none, that takes them from front side at high speed to at least an element of backside at low speed, and 100% backside in a helicopter or a Harrier. What we've done uniquely with this aeroplane, only in stovable mode, when we fly it conventionally, it's like that. It's, it's a bit of both. It's a bit front side, it's a bit backside, and it's flown that way. Whereas when we're in stovable mode, it's entirely front side. That is a smaller training commitment than we've had in the past. Nevertheless, it's a training commitment. It's a source of a potential pilot error. It's very, very, very difficult. You land at 120 knots in stovable mode. You touch down. It looks like a normal landing. What do you do? Pilots in the audience after landing, what do you do? You close the throttle. It's not the right thing to do in this aeroplane. If the weight on wheels hasn't been made, and there are lots of reasons why weight on wheels might not be made, then you're still flying. And when you close the throttle, you're not commanding idle. You're commanding what, you, what turns out to be a very high power because you're asking to a decel. It thinks it's flying. The power goes up. The nozzles go forward. It's bad for fog. It's bad for, bad for a whole bunch of reasons. So that is, that's, one of my slides said something about the throttle cognitive error. That is the error that is fundamental. And we have tried to mitigate that to the best of our ability. We've got not just weight on wheels, but we also use tack speed, wheel speed. Above 60 knots ground speed, we use tack speed as a secondary source to tell the pilot you're on the ground, to tell the controller. The pilot knows he's on the ground. You feel it, but you haven't made weight on wheels. To actually make weight on wheels, you have to make the ground fairly firmly. So if you do a touchdown, weight on wheels will not be made. So we try and use tack to help, 
probably the worst case at the moment is the hover. Touch down gently in a hover. And you may not be planning to touch down gently. You're pushing forward on the stick to touch down, remember. So you're coming down in a hover, touch the ground. If you've set up a sink rate, and then the ship happens to be in the cycle that it's moving away from you as you get close to the deck, you might touch down quite gently. If you do, you won't get weight on wheels. Then you close the throttle. Bad things happen. But if you start accelerating backwards, what happens when you accelerate backwards? You stand on the brakes. What happens next? You can't stop yourself. So again, mitigations, you know, we're not idiots, so we've tried to mitigate it. And what we're doing is we're mitigating it by using the rad out to say the airplane is really, really close to the ground. We can't use the rad out to provide a protection because it's simplex. And you can't do things with control laws, with simplex things. We're putting in a helpful hint. It's a bit, again, like an instructor in the back cockpit putting his hand behind the throttle saying, are you really, really sure you want to close this throttle? So below 20 feet, it's, it's not yet finalized, but below about 20 feet, we use the rad out signal to say, we'll stiffen the throttle. And if this idiot pilot tries to close it before he's got weight on wheels, then it's going to be a struggle. He'll still be able to, because the simplex rad out, he might need to be still flying and still need to decelerate. But we try and make life hard for him. Uh, Carl Harris from Connecticut Boston Down. Firstly, again, thank you very much for an excellent presentation, very informative. Uh, in terms of the, um, the completely different functionality of the Inceptors relative to previous generation, obviously the Harrier, do you foresee that there's a reduction in requirement for conducting handling qualities assessments with a handling qualities rating scale? Or is it more a case that different criteria needs to be used as what we've been considered previously? My instinct is to say that there's really no fundamental change. Um, when you fly the airplane conventionally, it flies like a conventional airplane, and you fly a conventional landing at 160 knots, and you flare it, and you touch down, and you do normal things. What we're doing in Stovall mode for a slow landing at 120, 180, 60 knots, it's actually very, very, very similar. You're flying flight path with your right hand and rolling it right and left, and you're controlling the speed that you want. And then it's a bit like being in autothrottle all the time, because once you've got the speed right, you just park it, and your left hand doesn't do very much because it's holding the speed for you. Um, so, But we, we are certainly still using the same HQRs that we know and love, the same rating scale. We use it very extensively. Um, the, the only real changes are that um, I think just like a Harrier, when you're doing a, a doublet at 120 knots, it's a doublet. You know, It pitches up, pitches down, you let go, and it stops. It stabilizes, it dampens. By the time you're in the hover, Doublets don't really work, you know, because it's a lump of lead. And it's the same on the Harrier. When you're, when you're in, a, in a hover, you don't really do doublets. It's more like sampling. I call it sampling. You, you do a little bit of back stick in the Harrier, and the nose comes up. You do a little bit of forward stick, and the nose goes down. But if you do a little doublet, then generally you don't get damping in a Harrier because it's an unstable airplane. Um, and when we do that, you're going to go up a little bit and down a little bit. So effectively, we still use HQR rating scales. And, and the big change is going from an airplane that flies like an airplane, the blend between the two conditions is about 50 knots. And below that, it's more like a lump of lead that you're just sampling, but it goes in all the directions you want it to. We still use HQRs. 
Hi, um, Steve Edwards, MBDA. Um, just a quick question about the uh, vertical takeoff test. Was that completed with a representative weapon payload in the internal bays? If so, what have you learned about the internal environment in those weapon bays, such like temperatures and vibration? A vertical takeoff is a fool's takeoff. It always has been, it always will be. Um, vertical takeoffs are great for air shows because people expect the airplane to do it. But you, I think you've hit the nail on the head. Payload that you can do a vertical takeoff with. If you're carrying weapons, then the amount of fuel that you can carry to do a vertical takeoff is just about enough to fly two circuits on land. So there's no operational capability, meaningful capability from a vertical takeoff. The requirement for a vertical takeoff in this program is simply a repositioning capability. It's you're on one ship, and for whatever reason, the deck has been destroyed or interrupted or whatever, or you've had a crash on it, a helicopter's blocked it or whatever, and you need to take your airplanes onto another ship that's 20 miles away. So the only specification requirement for this airplane is to be able to do a vertical takeoff, potter a few miles, land on another ship, where you will start operating in a proper mission environment, which is a full fuel load and a full weapons load, doing a short takeoff so that you get the benefits of both the wing lift and the engine thrust at the end of the deck. Um, I guess I'm skipping the scene, but you, I mean, you are quite right. When we, when we open these lids, which we need to do for the vertical landing case and the vertical takeoff case, whatever's in the weapon bays is being exposed to this fountain of cold air from the lift fan, hot air from the back end, it joins in the middle. So you've got a big, powerful fountain bouncing back up. Amazingly to me, the environmental guys aren't too worried about it. Reasons are it's a short-term exposure which it is, vertical landing, it's, it's a number of, it's, it's single-digit seconds that it's really exposed to a noisy and hot environment. It's when you get into ground effect. And if you were trying to do the same on a vertical takeoff, which you won't because of the payload problems, then again, it's a short-duration exposure. The envir environmental guys are much more worried about, and it's been designed for, the supersonic doors opening for weapon firing. And the environment, it was, it was a surprise to me, but the environment, supersonic, snapping these doors open, pooping off a missile, snapping the doors closed, that period of time is much worse environment, much more damaging to the doors themselves, the aircraft structure, the weapons that you're carrying inside, than anything that we can ever do in this global mode. Well, at that point, I, I sense that Graham... He's getting a bit hoarse. <laughs> I'm going to ask uh, John Farley to say a, a word, a few words. Good evening, Graham. Hey, John. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Um, isn't he a lucky bloke? <laughs> I mean, a really lucky bloke. Now, I know he appreciates that. But we ourselves are also extremely lucky to have had a chat like that about such a complicated device and such a complicated program because Graham has made it all so very straightforward to understand. And that's a real talent. And when it comes to talent, uh, I've met one or two VSTOL pilots and one or two VSTOL test pilots over the years, but I have absolutely no doubt that Graham is the best man we have got 
or for that matter perhaps have had to do this job. His background, his experience, his training, his natural talents mean that the programme is in extremely good hands. That's the only reason why the Yanks are letting him do it. So would you please join me and say thank you very much to Graham in the traditional way. Thank you.